Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today we have Dr. Scott Stevenson on the podcast. In this episode, we talk about stretch-mediated hypertrophy, we talk about training at long muscle lengths, and Scott is a great person to talk to this about because he has been experimenting with this sort of thing for a long, long time, and that stems from his time with Dante, and then he also has implemented this sort of stretching protocols within his fortitude training. So we dig into that, and I think you're going to really enjoy this first part of a two-parter with Dr. Scott Stevenson. As a reminder, if you haven't, then definitely sign up to our newsletter because we are putting out information there all the time. If you love little snippets of the style of information that you get from the podcast, you're definitely going to enjoy our newsletter. We very rarely try and sell to you over on there. We're not going to be sending you any spam. That'll be linked in the description as well. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Dr. Scott Stevenson back on the show. I was just checking, Scott, and I like to do this when regular guests come on. Uh, it was seven mm. months ago that we chatted, chatted hey. or at least it was released seven months ago. I actually don't know because we often Takes record these in advance and maybe I'm a month ahead sometimes if I'm good. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> I know, you know, it's, the, it's been a whirlwind because I've moved. I don't even, I don't, I can't, I'm trying to think, I think I was sitting in this position in this house. Yes. But I hadn't sold my other house at that time. So it's just, I just happened to be down here then. So I was in between houses. So gosh, Steve, don't take it personally. It's not you, but I can't, I can hardly even place doing that. I mean, I'm, now I'm, now it's coming no. back to me, but seven months, you could have told me it was 12. You could have told yeah. me it was four. <laughs> it's two and weeks it ago. Been, okay, okay. I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't argue. Yeah. How the uh, dogs, I know um, you were kind of doing some therapy with them last time. Oh yeah. So Suki, um, Suki had four types of cancer and so far we're in the, in the free in the free and clear with the cancer. Oh, awesome. Yeah. We did another um, CT scan. That was about a month, five weeks ago. And that's so that's great. They were the, actually everyone at the vet's office was so excited because we'd done most of the work up in Tampa, and I came back to, came down to where I am now, and they know how much I put in. I, I sometimes I go in and I'm a, somewhat of an outstanding dog owner. I get the I get the sense because I do everything, you know. And, and some people don't. Some people own own animals, own dogs, and they think of them more as as things that they own. They're more like sure. inanimate objects, you know. And um, they were so stoked because they know how much we worked. And they're like, because a lot of times that doesn't happen. You know, I heard like I run it, ran into the same people. We're doing chemo and multiple visits and with their dogs. And there were two or three owners, you know, who lost their dogs who were sort of along, along the path. So we were really, really happy about that. Um, I bet. And then Blitzy, my big dog, uh, she's got some low, you know, hind end stuff it happens all the time. Right. German shepherds probably has some hip dysplasia, maybe some sciatica. She's got a lot of arthritis. She's, um, she's actually beyond, she's a black lab bloodhound mix and bloodhounds don't live very long. Uh -huh. Um, so she's beyond the average life expectancy for, for bloodhound, which is great. Um, she's like so much you can learn from dogs, man. She's just so happy. Like everything's great. You know, she can't, she, sometimes you can't get up. That's the issue. It's gotten this bad. It really hit last week. We've seen a, a chiropractor actually twice. We're going to see a, a vet who does Chinese medicine, um, which is what we were doing previously in Tampa. But she's just like, she looks, when she can't get up, she looks at me and I go help her out. And then we keep walking. She wants to go on like these, you know, hour long, two hour long walkabouts because 
that's what she does, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, no, we can't do that because you're not able to get up at all later <laughs> in the day. So it's just a joy to have her, you know, like every moment, just like, okay, regardless of whatever, whatever kind of shit hits the fan in my personal life, be more like Blitzy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Even yesterday we were at the chiropractor and um, it's a, it was actually kind of a cool place. They have, it's a human chiropractic center and they also have, there's a vet there who does chiropractic. There's actually a human vet who has a chiropractic veterinary chiropractic certificate. So they collaborate. So there was, she was the only dog in the place. Um, but there are a lot of dog lovers I could tell. And they were all just, they were watching her cause it was time to leave. And she, whenever we're going somewhere that's new, she gets so excited and they were so enamored by how beautiful they could just see her spirit, like shining through. And they're like, Oh, she's so beautiful. She just loves you so much. It's really, really cool. So yeah, that's yeah, you can hear it in my voice. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. something, I, I think if you haven't owned dogs, that there's, there's something special to that relationship because oh. I, I didn't grow up with dogs. Um, my girlfriend did and she encouraged me to kind of we rescued uh, Ada who mm-hmm. sat behind me and mm-hmm. like you just grow a special bond with them I mean she's with me I spend more time with her than anyone else in this world so it's yeah. kind of like you, you do grow a really special bond with them yeah <laughs> sorry to she's, make you cry I didn't mean no, to you bring didn't up a load of emotions she, 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 did <laughs> she did it yeah <laughs> although it's all joy, positive you know? yeah 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 so yeah velcro dogs are great you know they're all, you know, it's interesting too, because I've had so many dogs and, and we'll get to the topic eventually, the topics of, yeah. of the podcast, but some, they tra- they can transform so much too. I've seen dogs, like one dog who was, the, who was, owned, who was owned by a, one of my best friends, but she was basically my dog. I watched her for three summers, I think. And she bought, like the guy that she bought the dog from said she was a puppy and she wasn't, she was fully grown. And he had obviously abused her in some way, shape or form. Right. You come within like five or six feet of her and she would just lay down and tower. It was bad. You know, so she was she was tr- really rescued from a bad situation. And then over the course of her lifetime, you know, by the it's like even five or six years later, she was still progressing and coming into her dogness. And she was loved to play fetch. Like she wasn't even remotely interested in, in fuzzy toys or balls or any of the kind of that stuff that made some dogs just love to get after and but it all came out like it was all there it all came you know came to fruition so to speak because she had a loving owner and she got to do cool stuff so yeah yeah they'll grow on you like even the even the dogs that aren't the velcro dogs at the beginning they they can become more and more attached to you and that's kind of it's kind of where my are you know yeah now we're very interwoven you could say yeah no i i i totally appreciate that and i'm sure there's lots and lots of dog lovers listening and if you don't yeah. get it you'll get it if you eventually own a dog or uh, they do become like yeah. your children uh, i would assume the relationship is is t- to some degree at a similar level i can't say because i haven't had children but um, right. yeah, I, I know what people both. say about that so it feels similar yeah. <laughs> to what yeah well they they stay in a childlike state you know because they're so dependent yes. upon you so, you know, there's obviously difference. Your kids go off to school and you watch them get married, have their own children and those sorts of things. And that's a, that's a different experience. So they're, you know, they're like, I don't know, who knows, like kids between the age of two and, and eight, maybe, yeah. you know, uh, and that's a beautiful time. That's a wonderful time. Um, and just like kids between two and eight, they can grow and evolve. Yeah. You know, you see them come into their own. Dogs can do the same thing. You know, they can, they can develop new habits, good, good or bad, yeah. <laughs> to allow them. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's um, yeah. I, there's so many good books about um, like Merle's Door is one that I would recommend to people if they want to read about dogs. It's a great book. Um, I want to go into and um, Zen and the Art of Racing in the Rain. I think is the name of the book. Yeah, or, or just the Art of Racing in the Rain. I mixed, I combined two books, but the Art of Racing in the Rain is a, uh, um, 
a book about dogs. Those two books are, if you don't, if you're a dog lover, you don't cry watching those and something's wrong. <laughs> Go see a doctor or, or, or reading those. I mean, one of them is made into a movie, but I can't get myself to watch the dog movies because yeah. I'd just be a slobbering mess, right? Yeah. It's almost too stressful. So I think a lot of us get that with films. You see a, a dog or an animal get hurt and you're like, oh, no, I can't. Whereas uh-huh. if it's humans dying, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, right. We get, we get numb to that, which is unfortunate, yeah. you know. But yeah, the dogs are, they're just so innocent, you know. And exactly. So many, yeah. So. Perfect. We'll get on to the, the bodybuilding yeah. topics now. Uh, and Let's dig in. I'll make sure I, I don't make you cry again, Scott. Uh, so <laughs> maybe uh, you're very passionate about hypertrophy you're so evil, too. You're Steve. <laughs> you asshole. So you're turning this me into is, a sloppy mess. <laughs> this is a question I was excited to actually talk to you about. And actually I've been talking to, I mean, it's kind of the hot topic within like the hypertrophy research at the moment is this mm. kind of the stretch mediated hypertrophy training at long muscle lengths and whether or not that's changing people's application of exercise selection or even like the range of motion that they kind of program people to do and mm-hmm. i know the reason i was excited to, to talk to you particularly about it is because you're one of the people i've heard mention many times uh kind yeah. of the bird studies with the kind of waiting the wings oh, right. and uh, those sort of things and i guess it's in many ways related to that so yeah my first question is kind of with all the i mean there's been a ton of literature that's come out recently for a bunch of different muscle groups kind of uh, all kind of direct pointing in the same direction for the most part um, mm-hmm. has it changed your perspective on things does it reinforce any thoughts in your mind uh, any changes towards kind of how you go about your programming or might suggest people do yeah it's interesting it's it goes way back uh dante trudell first mentioned he's he's kind of connected with the stretch overload model and he just brought that up um without insinuating but people sort of connected that to suggest that that model of hypertrophy is very, very close and similar to what you see when you're doing, in, in his case, DC stretches. So for those who don't know, of course, I ramble about it many times, as you noted, um, the stretch hypertrophy model is an avian model to use quail and they hang a, a weight off of um, off the off the, the, the bird's wing <clears throat> and basically be the equivalent in a human to hanging a big dumbbell off your arm continuously, constantly, all the all day long. And the anterior latissimus dorsi muscle grows tremendously in these quail when they do that. But that's a continuous, constant, all day long stress. And that's that's different than, for instance, a DC training stretch where you're holding the stretch for, for 90, 90 seconds, let's say. Um, so, so they do have lengthened positions in common, but one's a 24-7 stimulus and the other one's 90 seconds. So temporally, they're dramatically different. The thing that's interesting about um, what you're getting at with the, some of these studies, like the the Petrosa studies, the big one that people talk about a good bit, and um, uh, Darren Willoughby and Dan Newmeyer have a really nice um, review where they talk about partial range of motion, um, is that you see when you train in just a lengthened position, um, kind of a different pattern of muscle growth. And particularly, you'll see um, at the ends in this particular study, they just measured the distal end, but you'll see a change in the angle at which the fibers attach. Uh, so the pination angle changes and you get better growth at the ends of the muscle. They looked, I think, at the, um, the rectus femoris and the vast lateralis in that muscle. In this case, we're just doing knee extensions, but in the lengthened position primarily. Um, that's similar to what Dante had people doing. And I have people doing in my fortitude training program. I've got three different types of stretches. So I auto-regulate 
basically allow the person to right, which one they want to do as a supplement or an additional stress given a, given a workout. But the the DC training extreme stretch, or I have an occlusion stretch, basically functions on the principle that you produce force either by holding a weight, and you can progressively overload to some degree there, but you're holding a weight and just doing a static isometric contraction. But an extremely painful one and a lot of exertion. These aren't just like, ah, it's just kind of stretch out a little bit. It's not like, you know, beginner yoga class where you're just kind of like falling into position. You're literally trying to produce a prolonged high effort. In the case of the Clusen stretch, um, I have people do those where they get into stretch position and then they produce as much isometric force as they feel like makes sense for that day. So the reason, and I think maybe talk about this reason I included that in is there's sometimes when it's like, okay, if you programmed in an extreme stretch, you're going to do like a, a dumbbell fly in the stretch position. You can just tell it's like, I'm, I'm still a little bit sore. My tendons are a little bit achy. This is just not the smartest thing to do. Um, or um, I can't get myself into position where I can actually hit the muscle. Let's say chest is the, is the example that I use the most because you've got different, you've got a pinnated muscle in the, in the pectoralis major. So you have upper, you've got clavicular, costal, um, sternal aspects to that. So the angle at which you stretch will dictate where you're having that effect. So you might want to, for instance, do a stretch um, at a very particular angle because it feels right. You know you've got you've tuned into where you're sore, or you might be hurting yourself if you just picked up a heavy dumbbell and got on the only incline bench you have available. You can pick the angle and move into that, and then push as hard as you want. It can be literally a ninety second or sixty second all out effort from the get go, which is actually different than if you pick up. 50 pound dumbbell or 80 pound dumbbell, depending how strong the person is. And the stretch is no big deal at the beginning, just like a set. Um, but it gets very, very hard until finally you come to that, that, uh, that end point where you have to drop the weight. You can't hold it anymore. And usually a lot of times that's actually pain for many people. Um, that can be problematic because, and Dante had some people come at him after they try to push the extreme stretches too hard. Um, but you got a scenario, um, there's an actually an analogy there not to get too much into those into the stretching, but you know about flywheel training. Yes. Or, I have seen a okay. little bit of that. Yeah. I've not tried it. Big in Europe. I, I really want to get some flywheels. I've, I've, I've got connections when I think I get some flywheels and start doing some of that. There's flywheel training. There's isokinetic training. In, it. in both of those cases, you've got a situation where you can put forth maximal effort right from the get go. Right. So let's take isokinetic training. The, if you're doing knee extensions, the, the machine is just moving up and down at whatever speed you've set it up to. And your first rep can be a maximal effort. You can do 15 maximal effort reps. Whereas if you do a 15 rep max set with a free weight with a machine, the first three or four aren't effective reps. So you can accumulate effective reps basically from the beginning, at least in terms of maximal effort. Yep. You can do the same thing with, with a stretch as long as you get yourself in the right position by doing an occlusion stretch where you literally one peck at a time, get yourself braced. You can start that. You can do a 60 second all out stretch as hard as you want. So Dante's been doing that. I've had that in my system. Um, there obviously isometric contractions just in general um, can produce muscle growth. There's studies that suggest that eccentrics are generally better, but now we have, with that kind of a stretch scenario, which Dante sort of figured out and, and we, Dave, Henry and I saw this when we were doing DC training for so long um, that it does seem to add something. 
So now you've got, if, if you're doing like a, let's say you put your, your if you're going to talk about the quads, you put your foot back on, I usually, usually use like a, a lat pull down pad or like a, the, the um, ankle pad on a decline bench. So you can do like a, like a standing one-legged quad stretch. You get into that deep stretch position and you go to town for 60 seconds. You've got an all-out effort, which is advantageous because you don't have any of those non-effective warming up to where the set gets hard reps. And now you're in isometric contraction and you're in a stretch position. And it's also nice because if you're in that position, and you're like something feels a little bit wonky, you just stop. You don't have a load on your back. You don't have a load on your leg. You know, that's going to literally force you down, even if you want to, and maybe pr- produce a tear because um, you're maybe in a stretch position that that puts more tension on those passive elastic components in the muscle. So we've got a really cool, you know, addition, so to speak, or a way to sort of focus on a couple things. One, providing potentially a more effective way of growing the muscle because these lengthened positions seem to produce that. There's some research suggestion you get better metabolic stress in the lengthened position. It makes sense. Um, you're not going to be able to have blood flow between your reps. Once you get heavy enough, it doesn't matter so much. But that lengthened position also seems to turn on things like mTOR, um, some of the molecular markers of initiating a hypertrophy adaptation. So there's something about being in that lengthened position. That always it always made sort of made sense to me. I explained that in a very sort of bro sciencey teleological way. Like, you know, if you're if you're in control of a weight and you're trying to lift it up, well, then you know it's here. Or if you're if, imagine you're fighting an opponent, you're wrestling, and you're losing, well, then you're going the other direction. You're getting stretched into a position where you don't want to be. You're out of position basically from a tactical standpoint. If you're doing, you know, MMA or wrestling or taekwondo or what have you, jujitsu or what have you. So um, being in that, it makes sense from an evolutionary basis, and who knows if this has anything to do with it, but it makes sense that when the muscle stretched out like that and you're producing maximum force, like, oh shit, this is a, I'm being exposed to a a, a losing situation here where I'm not able to shorten the muscle and lift the weight up. It makes sense that muscle would be, would react more strongly in terms of adapting. Um, And in this case, we're just trying to evoke the hypertrophic adaptation. You've also got the nervous system, which kind of learns specifically based on the range of motion. So you've got you've got that an activation um, potential activation situation going on here as well. Because if you got more metabolic stress, which is potentially there, the main thing that metabolic stress does is it shifts your activation um, pattern, shifts the way you recruit the motor units. So if you're training in a lengthened position, um, and you got more metabolic stress, you're going to have potentially more activation at a, even a lighter load, which is what we see with the blood flow restriction training studies. And that leads to higher act, more activation of those high threshold motor units. So just being in that lengthened position may just, for whatever reason, be creating a greater stimulus. Um, and it also makes sense. There's, there's so many, there's so many levels to this, Steve. It's very, very, it's very, very cool. Um, it also makes sense that the muscle would adjust its architecture in the way we see with that pination angle and adding um, thickness, particularly at the end, because the muscle is now adjusting its resting length, so to speak, or its active, um, the range of, of length or the length of the muscle during which it can produce the most force. So it's, you've got this length tension relationship, actin and myosin overlap. And in growing in that fashion, 
you produce a scenario where the muscle architecture now has shifted to allow it to produce more force in the lengthened position because you've exposed it to tension and length. It's a beautiful genius uh, aspect of muscle plasticity that literally knows like, okay, you're going to test me in the lengthened position. Well, guess what? I'm going to adjust the angle at which the fibers grow, the angle of pinnation and pinnated muscles like the lateralis and actually the rectus femoris is a bipennant muscle. And so that now I'm, I'm a, my architecture allows me to produce more force in that lengthened position. So We've got a better a better stimulus. We've got a way to actually literally change the shape of a muscle, so to speak, because you see r- greater relative growth at the end ends in this case when you're doing these types of lengthened contractions during your training. Um, so we've got a new tool, but you got to figure out how it fits in the toolbox too, because um, it's a more potent tool and a more powerful tool. So if you try to do, let's say, let's say someone were to really dramatically orient their their training and I, I wonder i wish i wish john meadows were alive because he used to take some of these concepts and he would he would create a program like he did one program that was very blood flow restriction training oriented when that was getting really big and he's always had you know lengthened position types of stuff if you think about his hamstring training that sort of thing he would do the lengthened position type of work where, where, where when the forces are great at length position at the end of a workout when you're fully warmed up avoid potential injury but i wonder what john john would do you know he might create a program where you focus on after a good warm-up adding in those lengthened um position types of exercise or just partial range of motion exercises but if you consider that and we know that it's a stronger stimulus then you have to have that balance with appropriate recovery so you can't take 10 sets of what you were doing which worked for you in terms of progress and then just do 10 sets of now a more potent stimulus and without doing something to affect your recovery, expect that you're going to be able to come back from that necessarily. It might be too much. So more is not better. Better is better in the right amount, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So that's a long ramble. I've got a bunch of thoughts that are yeah. swirling around uh, my head. So I dumped a bunch of on you there. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. No, it's great. It's it's nice to hear, again, where <clears throat> kind of your initial exposure was to this kind of uh, thought process but behind kind of stretch-mediated hypertrophy and how that kind of stemmed from Dante and you guys obviously mm-hmm. anecdotally saw kind of use and rationale for it. And I, I actually forgotten it was within your fortitude programs. And mm-hmm. I have heard people talk about it. Some people are like, um, I don't know if you put it in there as optional, but I think I heard some people kind of, they maybe skip that part, what have you, maybe they're not going to skip it now uh, because um, it's 
clearly got something there. And and something I was going to ask with the stretching, because I think when a lot of people think about stretching and they think about training, the, the th- first thought that comes to mind is like, oh no, I, I shouldn't stretch. Um, like warming up, for example, kind of mm. you can reduce the amount of force you can put out if you stretch statically for too long. So that right. was going to be a question in terms of where you place these kind of stretching uh, elements. And you kind of almost alluded to it about kind of John putting the stretch kind of towards the end of the workout. I'm guessing maybe yeah. it's similar. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes just makes the most sense. You're totally warmed up. Um, the DC extreme stretches were always afterwards. My stretches are always afterwards. I mean, I always stretch out a little bit just because I'm I'm old and creaky and it feels good to do that, but I don't do any, I don't try to put an aggressive stimulus provoking stretch at the beginning of a workout. And I, you know, I don't think most people should probably do that, but it does make sense. Let's say that you spend your whole week like sitting at a desk, you rarely squat down and you want to do full range of motion squats, maybe for this reason that you, you know, just squat down to do a full squat and just sit there, you know, for 30, 45 seconds, like get yourself uh, acclimated in terms of your nervous system as well to that range of motion. So that's not a precarious position you're putting himself, yourself in when you just jump in. Um, so it, it makes sense to, you know, spend a little bit of time in that range of motion, but not aggressively. I wouldn't say at least. Yeah. Um, the thing that's interesting about, and I, I wonder to what extent this is, it's, it pro- I think it's probably the evidence I'm aware of makes it tells me it's probably part of what's going on here is for instance, they, there's um, studies with isolated muscle. They'll take a muscle and they'll stretch the muscle out. This is an animal work and they'll stress. Them out. So basically you've got almost, you're beyond active force production range. So there's no actin and myosin um, inter- overlap. And then they will, if you stimulate a muscle electrically, so turn on everything that would normally produce a contraction, but you disallow it, you produce massive damage. You, you turn on, you know, the, the myosin and, 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 and maybe there's, if there's a little bit, you just, you just totally destroy the alignment of the actin and myosin. They get, it gets totally out of register. You can literally just decimate a muscle that way. So I, I wonder if, you know, training in your active range of motion where your actin and myosin overlap is good, um, would produce a given amount of damage. We know damage is more with the eccentrics, but, and then if you're, if you're here in terms of your actin myosin overlap, you got a situation where there's not much connection there and you're, you're going to have to have more activation in that, in that case, because you don't have that optimal actin myosin overlap Forgive any given weight because you're stretched out. That's going to tend to cause a little bit more, like I said, the blood flow restriction, a little more metabolic stress, a different activation pattern. And it could be very much one to the feature of stress in, when it comes to weight training is novelty. It's progressive overload is the way I think of it. It's novelty. You've done something you've never done. It's new. You keep on doing a bunch a set of exercises. Then you throw a new one in that's novel. It's a different activation patterns. And that can cause some damage that causes a stress that your body's not used to, or the muscles aren't used to in this case. So you get to this lengthened position. Now you've got some novelty, especially if you're not used to doing those partials. Um, and I wonder if simply being in that position, because you've got so much of the actinomyosin that is not interacting because there's no overlap there. Um, if that just simply moving back and forth, bringing the Z lines closer together in the sarcomere in that lengthened position just inherently causes more damage, just like a static or lack of static contraction when you're out of register does, that you're just producing more damage. Not that you want damage per se, but you've got that aspect of the stimulus in place that's 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 stronger and better. 
Um, and that's maybe, you know, the the rhyme and reason as to why nature evolved this way of adapta- adapting so that we get better and change literally the um, the orientation of the fibers to adjust uh, the, the actin and myosin overlap. So it's more optimal when you're, again, training with a now hypertrophied muscle in that lengthened position doing those exercises. So it's a really cool biohack of hypertrophy, you know, just trying to figure out, okay, what is going to trick this muscle into growing? What's going to get it to go? Because here's the thing, and you you know this, um, people who don't have great genetics know this, is that hypertrophy is just one potential adaptation that we can evoke from weight training. We as bodybuilders are so muscle growth focused, we think, well, weight training, it's the best stimulus we know of, close to it. Fiable training works really well. Electrical stimulation with a nice connected device, device works probably better. Um, there's some evidence to that, but this is the stimulus we have. And the whole point, the, the body is just going to grow from that hypertro- from that stimulus of resistance exercise. But then there are um, like Jeremy Lenicky, for instance, is one person who has sort of proffered the idea. He's the guy who's done a lot of the blood flow restriction work yeah. that hypertrophy is really kind of a secondary pseudo side effect of weight training. And if you, and one of the main ways to sort of grasp that concept is if you look at what happens over the course of like a weight training career, watching someone go from beginner to intermediate or advanced is they might over the course of entire career, like double their muscle mass, but they might triple their strength. So, and you look at, you know, short-term adaptations to weight training, like your nervous system can, a newbie can get stronger every time they come into the gym, right? And you start that hypertrophic process, but you also start a a much less energetically demanding process of simply turning on enzymes, increasing mitochondria if the stress um, proffers that, and shifting the myosin isoform to one that's a little more efficient for the prolonged contractions that you're seeing when you're training because it's something very different what you've been doing. So you just sort of shift the enzymes and shift the energetics of the muscle, allow the nervous system to figure out how to better... um, adapt to the stress and then the last thing we want to do is take all of this energy all this all these calories and make sure there's plenty of protein around everything else and actually make make a bigger car it's sort of like imagine you're starting with a pinto and you want to make it into like a really big um uh very very fast like have you seen the electric hummers that are out now you've seen that's yeah. a totally american thing there's i saw a video i sent it to actually a buddy of mine who's a brit because he was thinking about getting it just because they're cool and the thing uh, got from zero to 100 miles an hour the thing can hang with it's actually faster than a lamborghini it's scaled back you know the lambo takes it at the end but it's so fast so imagine you got a pinto and you want to make it into like that kind of like a giant you know super fast thing um if you don't starting with the pinto is a horrible base form to start with you can take the Pinto, you know, and make sure you got the right mixture of gas in there and put in, put a turbo in the engine and put in nitro, all these adaptations, learn how to become a better driver, learn how to shift the gears. Let's say it's an autom- not an automatic, it's a manual. Those are the things that the nervous system, the body is really readily willing to do. And those happen along the way. Um, and that's largely attributed. That's largely what we can attribute these gains in strength that you see from someone who goes from a 150 pound bench press to a 450 pound bench press. They haven't tripled the size of their pec muscle in many cases. They haven't tripled their muscle mass. So we got to keep that in mind that we're we're asking the muscle cells to do something that, you know, if you don't have extreme genetics that just turn on that program of muscle growth for whatever reason, whatever 
myostatin deficiency or who knows what that that may be in their genetic background, then you got to be tricky with with these types of approaches yeah. with lengthened where you're literally doing something. Just to go back and quote Dante, I love the. I, I always want to give credit to some of the ideas that he's proffered and he's put out. You get funky with it. You start doing shit that you know you've never yeah. done before, <laughs> and that's a way to get someone who's pretty dang good even better. So they got to do things that are just outside the box, like a lot of partials, yep. you know. So that makes me think of. Uh- obviously the research coming out on like volume and quite often the like non-responders within studies tend to respond once you just give them enough. Like yeah. you can sometimes they have to use wacky amounts of volume to get the same growth. Someone who can just use 10 sets or something. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. And uh, also the stretching and um, I, I'm sure you saw it with the calves and I can't, I think you did talk about stretching when we talked about, we had basically a podcast, which was almost all about kind of calf growth and ways you could get your calves to grow. I'm sure <laughs> right. you've seen the study. Oh, yeah. I think it came out of Germany because um, obviously you've been learning a lot of German. So you probably, I imagine you've seen it where they wore like a orthotic device uh, to strap their foot into a stretched position. For oh the calf. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they did that. Yeah. I think it was like, eight weeks or something like that, an hour a day. And the uh-huh. calves for some individuals grew up to 15% over that time. So it was just yeah. like mm-hmm. stuff like, uh, imagine you just get this like full body device, strap yourself in, <laughs> see which much do with that an hour a day. That's your workout. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's the thing like where, what is the dose response to that? How much time do you have to spend in that stretch position? I think there's something to say for like posture, for instance, if you're someone who's always sitting like this all day long, and your pecs are chronically at a shortened position, that probably isn't going to help you with pec size, pec growth. So what's happening there, it's the same thing. The, the muscle is just remodeling itself um, so that it's, in this case, the volume goes up, the cross-sectional area goes up, but it's it's making itself, um, adjusting its pination angle so that you've got better actin-myosin overlap suited to this resting muscle length. It's brilliant the way that it does. You, have, you see the opposite happen when you cast a muscle in a shortened position. We talked about this, I think, on that on that podcast. Um, you'll even see in people with spinal cord injuries, because um, a lot of times they'll sit in when they're sitting. I'm, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this. I mentioned it regularly, and they sit in a wheelchair with their with their ankles plantar flexed, and the tibialis anterior is the same size as able-bodied people because it's on a stretch. So it's it's probably gotten larger, or at least it hasn't shr- shrunken. It's gotten smaller from the lack of use, the tissues atrophy, but the lengthening actually preserves its size because it's re- it's still living tissue. Um, at least you know the first years of eventually the the atrophy can be incredible um, over you know decades and decades. But yeah, length it's the chronic length that matters um, throughout the day. So. Yeah, I wish you could do that. Let's somehow put everything on stretch all at once. But if you're if you're doing this, then your back muscles, you know, are shortened. The the yeah, the you know, the posterior musculature is shortened. So yeah, you gotta you gotta maybe pick like are, are your quads better than your hams, you know? <laughs> so maybe you you know you spend the day with your quads, you know, bent. See what happens there. Get one of those you know sort of ergonomic seats where yeah, you, I know you the sit. Ones. Yeah, who knows? I, I wouldn't be surprised. That's something I've kind of noticed that I, I that you see guys. Ronnie Coleman's a great example of this. He had a great back though too. So Ronnie's you know probably not, but Ronnie's you know he just sort of like, was like this. He was like his chest was he just held his held his that was his typical posture, and his chest was ridiculous. He's known for his back, but you see that sometimes. Look around for that. It's kind of like the observation you see all these all these um people who are overweight who have giant calves. It's like okay, yeah. there's something to that. 
if you see people's posture, the posture will often match, especially if they're lifting, the posture will match the relative size of the musculature based on the length of that musculature. It's very so, interesting. And yeah. uh, it it's funny actually thinking about kind of keeping muscles in a stretch position, maybe when injured and you can't use them. Because mm. I know they do like BFR and occlusion. That's part of kind of to retain a muscle, you can occlude it. So yeah. I wonder if I have a client actually, and I couldn't tell, I couldn't, we couldn't decide if it was a good thing to be doing, a bad thing to be doing, or just like net, like neutral basically. And he's right. bought some occlusion uh, cuffs that you, he was basically working uh. at his desk, occluding his arms and yeah. just like doing things or doing his cardio and occluding his legs. And I was like, okay. And I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but he was just like, it feels good. And uh, mm -hmm. I was kind of like, maybe it's just a night. I don't know if it's a stress enough to cause hypertrophy. Maybe it's just enough to kind of drive muscle, uh, sorry, blood to those muscles and they recover faster. Or I, I'm not even sure. Yeah. Um, Mario Novo is the guy to talk to on that, I think. Um, and I, from what I understand, the, sometimes if he starts, if he's going to start someone off with the program, let's say for the legs with blood flow restriction, he will do that. He'll cuff the legs and have them start with walking cardio. Um, that works with the katsu training, the katsu training that they do in, in Japan, like that for older people who um, their walking is about all they're going to have them do. They can still walk and they and they'll see muscle growth just from occluded walking. The question is whether that is enough of a, um, an extra stimulus to produce anything in someone who's already pretty, pretty, pretty well trained. And I think there's probably just like pretty much everything in bodybuilding. There's probably gonna be some people who are going to adapt to that and others who won't. You know, we have a lot of, I would, I would be willing, this is just looking at the whole landscape. I've got a, um, I've got a um, sort of a model and I'll eventually put this in an article and get it published someplace, but I kind of call it um, Mount St. Hypertrophy. And if you look at the relative loads and which could consider like the effective reps idea, um, for instance, at lighter loads, you're not going to get much hypertrophy to do a set of 15 with a 30 rep max, but you it's probably makes more sense if you're going to do 30% of a one RM that you're going to take that set to failure. So you've got this huge landscape in terms of the relative loads that you can use and how much growth you're going to get. Now you start training with 90% of a one rep max and you're trying to do triples and have enough of a volume to produce muscle growth, you're, you're probably going to whack your nervous system before you, you get much out of that in many cases. But between sort of those parameters, like below 20%, maybe 30% of one rep max and above 85 or, or 90 as a regular training regime, you've got, you've got a huge range of loads that can be used that can produce muscle growth. So you, I, I've sort of, I, I put this in a three-dimensional graph that I, I put in a spreadsheet just to kind of visualize. It's kind of cool. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you pick 50% and you leave four, six reps in reserve, you haven't start, you're not going to get any growth out of that. All right. Out of using that, if you just think of it as that's your main, that's the mainstay of how you train, you're going to have to go to two reps in reserve or one rep in reserve. And the height of that mountain, so to speak, is dependent on your genetics and the shape of the mountain from the lower loads to the lighter loads, whether it is ascending, whether there's an optimal loading is going to vary depending on the person as well. So everyone's going to have their own, own mount St. Hypertrophy, so to speak, where they, where they best adapt. Um, and the number of sets you do is also going to be the volume that you train with is all, also going to be a factor in there. So we've got, um, where you're training in terms of 
uh, reps and reserve or the extent to which you bring your sets to a muscular failure or even beyond the load that you're using and the volume that you're applying. And all of those things are interacting in, you know, sort of this three-dimensional Mount St. Hypertrophy, the three-dimensional algorithm for each individual, for each muscle. <laughs> um, and there's also a background of indirect training that you get, right? So you're training back, you know, one of the things with DC training, the way Dante always had people doing some sort of rack dead that works for most people, not everybody, but you're doing heavy rack deads, you're doing heavy bent over rows, those sorts of movements. You're going to get some, you're going to get some, and you're pushing the food and everything's going up. You're going to get some, some growth in the arms. You don't need to do a ton of arm training, but if your arms aren't growing, then you need to, they need that in. Right. I know the factor that you mentioned too, um, in these non-responders that is missing from so many of these studies. And I've talked about this is the caloric excess, the role of caloric excess. You know, what's, how's, how do they respond in terms of P ratio? Could you take, you know, I would love to see love to see a study where they like let's gather together all the non-responders, right? Um, and maybe even do a, you know a crossover of some sort or a series of studies, or just split them into groups. You could configure this various ways because there's several questions to be answered. But you know, what if you keep those non-responders on the program that works for you know 90% of people, and then ensure you know lock them away, sequester them. Um, metabolic ward type of scenario and say, okay, now we're going to give you 500 calories beyond your caloric balance on a daily basis. You know, let's do that. Or what, what is the role of sleep? Like there's all the other factors that are on the other side yeah. of the, of the picture. Like we have to have enough calories to grow and we have to have all the other aspects of recovery. And those could be, I mean, you can turn someone who normally grows well and you can, they'll backslide like a mofo if they can't sleep. They just got they just got divorced. Their their boss is an absolute butthead. Um, they had to change gyms. They don't like their new gym because it's like a whatever kind of a box gym and it doesn't have the vibe that they once had. And their life is just going horribly and they'll backslide like crazy, regardless of their genetics, even if they're eating plenty just because they're so stressed out. So there's all those other features that are potentially playing a role. It's not just a non-responder to the stimulus. It may be that you just have a lifestyle that is just absolutely horrid for putting on muscle, muscle growth. So yeah, there's so many, so many cool things could be, could be evoked there, but. Um, Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini cup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do but the best thing is that you can start whenever you want the mini cup movement is open 24 7 so if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up hit the link in the description below so let's revive stronger together it's yeah. that's it's it's so incredibly well said um like that in that regard i was uh, literally it reminds me i was just speaking to someone at the gym and he was talking about his uh a client who was going to go on trt and i, I was kind of mm. and he, he was asking me about it and i was like so is it is it sleeping check like is he in a surplus like is he doing everything he should be to have as good of a testosterone level as possible because 
I don't know, the number of people I think consider testosterone replacement therapy when it's lifestyle generated, not mm. because they have some actual thing wrong with them. They're just not sleeping right. well. They're like chronically stressed. So it relates completely to this. Like you said, like the non-responders, what are they doing? <laughs> are they simply just not got their life in check? They're not in a surplus and all the responders are. Because right. if, if you don't have that under control, you, it's hard to pass out. And I think it's also why like even like science you have to take with a pinch of salt sometimes because of those sort of things. And it's even more so an anecdote when someone says like, this works for me. It's like, yeah, but what did you, other things did you change potentially that could have led to that yeah. result? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tricky so, one. It's so rare when someone will say, okay, I'm going to just change one thing and see what happens. Like that takes a lot of patience and, a, and a, yeah. Um, people don't typically do that until they get to the point where they're not, make, they're not making any progress and they can't figure out why. So they okay, I have to do something different. Yeah. Um, and, you know, adding volume isn't always the answer, too. If you look at the the Damas, um, the, the paired studies that I may have talked about here, too, where they they first they wanted to compare five versus three versus two times training in a week, three sets of 10 per session. One leg was trained five times. The other leg was trained two or three times per week. And on average, didn't make a difference. You know, statistically speaking, no difference in the in the average muscle growth. But when they broke it down by the subjects, about one third of them did better with higher volume, five sets versus two or three. They lumped the two or three together. And another third of the subjects did better with the lower volume. So some of them, some people should go down in volume. Some people should train more like DC training, more like maybe Dorian Yates did and maybe put more effort in as opposed to just going in and just pumping out set after set after set. I was the thing I was going to say before that I, I think I think there's probably something to this. It's it's not a hard and fast rule, but I'd be interested to see if we can ever kind of tease this out in terms of this dose response with volume, um, like in the in the in the paradigm of looking at the individual responses and maybe doing a crossover. The one legged the one legged model is beautiful. Yeah. Um, is that and this study didn't show it. They just had some really good responder people just responded really really well. And some people respond really well to low volume. Some people respond really well to the higher volume. But in general, I think it seems like, and just you see that most of the best IFBB pros, at least, and maybe you can maybe you can um, chime in on what it how it is with the natural competitors. But most of them, um, and this makes sense given some of the things I that I have in the back of my head. They the those people who grow the best do a high volume routine because they can they can recover from a greater stimulus. So the more you can stimulate and recover, the better. And the people who grow the best, you know, Brandon, this came, we talked about, talk with Brandon Curry um, on my podcast years ago. And he's talking about, you know, being in the middle East and how there are guys who come out there who pay to try to, you know, hang with the, with the big boys. And everyone does the same thing. Everyone does like the high volume, like, like they just don't have the genetics to recover. So they don't go anywhere. They could probably be making good progress if they tapered things back, but that's not how they do it. Everyone kind of does the same thing, I think. And and they know that like if you can't hang, you're not going to be – I think maybe built in – I haven't talked with you guys directly, but I think maybe built into their, their understanding, maybe not even fully aware of it, is that if you're going to be one of the best in the world, which is who they're trying to, trying to find and train out there, you're going to have to recover from this. So their uh, sort of unspoken rule is – if you got the genetics to be as good as as we want you to be, you're going to have to be able to handle this training. If not, you you'll just fall out because you you won't be able to hang. So, I I think the interesting thing and this thank goodness we have Dorian Yates, you know, who didn't do um, a ton of volume. He did some you know decent warm up sets, but he wasn't banging away the way Ronnie was, the way a lot of really really good bodybuilders do. Is that 
people may have tremendous growth. We see this from the Dama studies, tremendous growth potential um, that is squandered because they're doing too much volume. On that hormesis curve, they're way past their optimal volume given how they can recover. Yeah. But they've but they've their genetic program on that Mount Saint hypertrophy is on the volume parameter, means they need to bring back the volume and maybe train with a higher. Um, I would tend to think that those guys are gonna need to train with a higher load and and you know, sort of a more traditional, like you know, eight to twelve to fifteen. But who knows? You know, there may there may be people. There certainly are muscle groups like the calves is one where people do better with higher reps. Legs generally tend to do better with higher reps. There may be there may be who knows? There may be some subcategory of individuals, and this is outside the box thinking. So maybe this will occur. Someone you know, I haven't tried that. Where their best growth, or they could get more growth than what they have, would be making a a portion of their training or shifting their training towards doing a low number of sets, but higher reps. To failure. So high effort, keep the quality, but do like, I mean, God forbid you go in and do like three Widowmakers on the squat and that's it. That's yeah. all you do for that day. Like, you know, 20, 30 reps. That'd be brutal, right? You do that, you know, Tom Platt style. He did pretty good legs wise. He would train like once every 10 days, I think, you know, when he's at his best because he trained so hard. I think he did a decent amount of volume, but there may be, because generally we tend to think volume, you do more volume, you're going to do higher reps. They're just kind of those things just kind of flow together, kind of makes sense, right? Um, and there's maybe some reasons for that, but maybe some people could think outside the box and say, hey, I'm going to just do three high rep, high effort sets, um, maybe frequently or even lower volume more frequently or lower volume less frequently. And, you know, figure out where your where your peak is on the Mount St. Hypertrophy for each muscle group. We, we neglect that part too, is that the frequency for different muscle groups could be highly variable. Yeah. Right. Um, calves, you can train every day. A lot of people do really good with calves. They train them every single day. Right. Um, people wouldn't do that for chest. Most people wouldn't, but that might work, you know? So, yeah, I think it's, uh, especially when you get to these like later stages, I guess as a, a natural competitor, you, they're perfect sometimes because there's no other outside variables that so much could influence. Like there's no drugs coming in that could influence the results of the training. So it's like, it, right. it's a good study for an advanced competitor who's near their genetic ceiling. Like, okay, mm -hmm. you're doing everything right. Let's try upping the delt frequency and see if they respond better or doing higher volume right. on your delts than you ever have before. If you're recovering, why not try it? That's it. That's I bring that example up because it's something I'm trying to see if I can get those, oh, get the cap okay. delts to come up. But um, everything yeah. you're saying there is really, re uh, uh, I resonate with it well because it's how I view kind of my bodybuilding career in that I've managed to continue to progress because I've learned me better. Uh, and I've, mm -hmm. I've kind of within the training in terms of volume, kind of uh, rep ranges and all those kind of aspects, frequency, I've started to find kind of my recipe or my mount uh, hypertrophy, like it, I'm right. starting to find those things. And I think a lot of people, hopefully they get there at some point, but they kind of maybe give up or they don't quite they feel frustrated because i don't know they mm. just see studies saying more volumes better and they try that and it doesn't work for them and they don't try bring it back and things like this so i think what you've said there hopefully it has made some people reconsider maybe some of the things they're doing you know the thing and that's real uh, this is one thing one of the questions that was you know what things have you changed um yes. and i wasn't even thinking of this when i pondered that question but one of the things i really want to emphasize um that's so so important is that the purpose of scientific studies is you you sample a population. So you define the parameters of your of your subjects, age, 
you know, at least six months of training if they're to be quote unquote trained. And then you conduct a study and you run the statistics. And the statistics are basically evaluating whether if given that condition, if you were to take someone else from that same population, same age, same relative training experience, et cetera, would you expect that this condition would have the effect, um, have an, an effect? So you're really totally generalizing. So if you've got a wide variety, as we see in all these studies, when you look at the individuals, some are non-responders, some are hyper-responders, you've got all a huge range of potential adaptations to whatever it is. It may be the training regime. It may be some supplement that's added in. Who knows what? And unless you have a systematic effect, so that kind of works for everyone um, in a certain direction, statistically, you're not going to not going to see an effect. So you get a, you'll get a null effect. A lot of times scientists, um, they won't publish those studies because it seems like it's, you know, it's a it's a dead end. Like we open this door, we walk down and like there's nothing that's in the hallway. So we just we didn't leave a note like, hey, nothing here. You need to leave it. Put a note, you know, post yeah. notes. Hey, like this is a dead end. Don't go down that route. Um, but the thing is, is those studies back to the important point, those studies are just are they're designed to for a generalized statement that we could count on this, but it doesn't address what can happen to those individuals. You can count on resistance training generalized in a general way to produce muscle growth, unless you're a non-responder, you know, for what and which whatever reasons that they may there, there may be. So that's the thing. And, and and the other side of that or the important point of that is if you have a mixed bag of literature um i love that we're having so many meta-analyses that are being done you know the statistics guys are gurgic and the people who are doing those uh krieger i think you've had james krieger you've had on his on your he, those guys are doing some really cool meta-analytical work and that it's a really nice way to like get the big picture see the forest from the trees um but in a lot of forests there's a lot of different kinds of trees you know and that's a thing that can kind of be missed there. If you have, let's say, three studies out of 20 or eight studies out of 20 and that had some effect, that means it's possible, right? And even in, as I mentioned, the five versus three versus two times per week study, that study showed zilch, Zippo, no difference. But for, for two-thirds of those subjects, it made a difference how they trained in terms of the muscle growth. Now, you can't, it's harder run stats on that because you're looking at individuals, but it was it was meaningful from a practical standpoint. And that's the thing is that if you find and not that like if someone posts some like sort of random study that, you know, a supplement X, Y or Z, you know, just has this tremendous effect like, oh, good, then it could work for me necessarily. But you have to think of even a study that has a null finding in terms of generalizing an effect to the, the, the population studied. There were probably some who responded, so to speak. Could have been for the the supposed or the understood actions that that supplement or that training might have had, or could have been for placebo reasons. I mean, hell, it could be, you know, let's say, let's say the guy um, was going in, some guys like to train, they train better with women. I think there's a sociological, psychological effect there, right? Like you don't want to be shown up by a woman. So you go in and you give a good effort, right? If you're a big guy and you're training with some guy who's not as big as you and doesn't train as hard. You got there's nothing really to prove, so to speak. So you can have you can have these Rosenthal effects. You can have these experimenter effects that could create a situation where some people in that study could have a great effect um, because they have a good training effect simply because they had the hots for the exper- the graduate student who was running them through. The, there's all sorts of things that are there, 
And that's an individual effect. It was the same graduate student, but she didn't have a good vibe with everybody, only with that particular person, right? And that's like outside of, they controlled for that, right? It was the same exposure, the same person training. You would think they're doing the same, but there's still humans that are involved here. There's still placebo effects. There's those, these outside factors that come into play. So if you find a series of studies that seem to show some effect, um, a lot of times, because of what's done with these meta-analyses, they have to, and they, they do a wonderful job. They describe how they chose their studies. And in order to have enough studies that they can come up with a statistical effect, the more studies, the better, Right. They often have have to broaden the criteria that they use to pick the studies. So, of course, that that reduces um, the generalizability of what they're finding there to some degree. So, let's say we just picked resistance training studies, and some of them. Let's say I'm just being facetious here a little bit. Let's say they're doing some sort of a, um, a study of frequency, resistance training frequency, and and this has actually been this has actually been compiled to some degree. Let's say imagine a meta-analysis. And all they do is they don't they compare heavy training with light training. They ignore volume. They ignore whether it's blood flow restriction. They ignore all those things. They just toss them in and they look at frequency alone. You've got all these other things that we know are going to influence the potential adaptation. Um, that's not going to tell you so much. That might say the two versus three versus four times a week doesn't matter, right? It's like, yeah, but it's because your results are all over the place. Now, if you look at if you if you look at several studies and and let's say you've got five studies in there that had different frequency and they all had very very similar subjects very very similar training parameters and you do see to see something there it's like okay there's possibly something there potentially to look at doesn't mean they're necessarily for you but even even one study is like ah there's something there potentially and that's just a particular study that found a statistical effect. It could very well be, as in the five versus three versus two, that the individual there were individuals who responded because of the graduate student or because of their unique genetic predisposition or where their Mount St. Hypertrophy peak happened to lie. So that's the beautiful thing. And, you know, um, Brad gets Brad Schoenle gets so much so much shit all the time, you know, about his studies is they're, they're pointers and they're super, super helpful. You know, the forest is this direction. There's a path and there's a path, but it doesn't tell you necessarily which one's the best for you, right? Yep. Um, and that's that's the beauty of it. You do have to do exactly what you're 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 doing bodybuilding the way it should be done, in my opinion, Steve, is you're you're going in, you're finding, you're knowing yourself. There's a there's an old wisdom of the to that idea, know thyself. Self-exploration, yeah. <laughs> you know, is perhaps one 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 of the most important reasons why we're alive. You know, to love others and to, to to know ourselves, and then of course to love ourselves, and not trying to be bodybuilding this narcissistic love yourself type of thing, but it's a journey, it's an exploration, and you're gonna find stuff that may not fit with anybody anybody else's idea, yeah. um, or may fit with a very small minority. So that's that's I think how you combine the the bro science, like when there's a bro science n- notion. I, well, first we've got to define bro science. If a bunch of guys say this is something that probably works, then there, there's likely something there because someone's seeing something. Now you got to figure out what's the conf- what are the confounding factors. Um, maybe they're all on drugs, right? Maybe there's interaction between drugs and the training. Um, so you got to you have to consider that. But um, 
the problem with quote unquote bro science is the way I see it is when people start to try to come up with physiological mechanisms underpinning what they've seen that don't make any sense from, from the standpoint of physiological science. Now that's kind of hogwash. And it's unfortunate when people do that, they want to, they want to sort of bolster their idea. Like this is what I saw. And I think it's because X, Y, and Z. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. From my understanding, my training as a physiologist, that doesn't really fit. So you could have just left it. Like, I don't know how this works. You know, but hey, give it a shot, yeah. you know, but so the bro science is when they're making up BS, the bolt bro science is BS um, underlying mechanisms, but there's, there's something to say there. And that's what going back to Brad, give, give Brad some kudos. That's what he's done such a phenomenal job at is looking at the bro. Cause he's so long as a personal trainer, he heard the bro science, like this is what we should do. So he's made a whole career out of uncovering, you know, what's behind these notions that have been around for decades that hadn't been tested. Yeah. And that's awesome. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.